This is Liminal Leaders, a podcast exploring the changing nature of leadership in business transformation. And we are your hosts, Martin Dyson and Brian Hoadley. For new listeners, each episode follows one of two formats. It's either a drop-in session where Martin and I discuss various themes in our book, reflecting on how the topics have manifested in our own practice and where we might take our writing next. Or Brian and I have a discussion with a guest expert or contributor who we want to interview as part of our research. Either way, these are pretty much the raw recordings of our conversations, with minimal editing allowing you to listen in on our working and thinking process. Challenge that, Martin, and whether scale is a kind of modern con- concept in that way that we need, to, because you could argue that a lot of the reasons we're in this mess is through lack of diversity of thought and practice and system. Yeah. And that, and I, that another read, a book I read recently was The Dawn of Everything by David Graeber and David mm-hmm. Wendrow, which where they want their kind of core question is how did we become so stuck in one way of doing things, one kind of politics, one kind of organizational mode mm-hmm. and they look at um, other cultures pre-western cultures in north america or and then you can go across the globe and find that there for example there were places that would run one political system in the summer and a different one in the winter dependent they would centralize and then they would disperse and they would have wow. a single ruler and then they would have small tri- small bands of hunters and it's a fantastic book. Yeah, they're, it's the same kind of inquiries. Like, what's the alternative to this thing that we we currently think is so fixed? Today, you're going to hear Martin and I in conversation with Ben Reason. Ben is founder and group director of LibWork and co-author of Service Design: From Insight to Implementation and Service Design for Business a practical guide to optimizing the customer experience. A pioneer in service design, Ben is a strong voice in the community and with his team has worked with clients globally to bring brilliant new innovative services to market. More recently, Ben has been exploring the role of design in the Anthropocene and it's a combination of his long experience of systems thinking and service design along with his recent explorations that brings him into our conversation today. Discussing the ideas of Tim Morton to Tim Jackson and others, this wide-ranging conversation covers ample ground in terms of design with a capital D and exploring what it means to reside in liminal spaces. You'll get to hear about Ben's recent thinking about design as a practice in society, and we'll find connections with conversations we've had in the past with regenerative design thinker Andy Thornton and data philosopher Ola Vach. We really enjoyed catching up with Ben and believe that you will too. As always, we'd be interested in hearing your take on the conversation. Let's join in now. Your work about design in the Anthropocene, I find really fascinating mm. because for me, we're talking about moving between epoch. Really, we're moving from one to the next and question about whether we've actually made that shift is being debated, um, or maybe we are, you know, we have made that shift reading through some of the things that you've written and thinking back through a lot of the conversations that we've had there seems to be a lot of there seems to be a lot of alignment between where you've been <clears throat> and what you've been writing about and talking about and the explorations that we've made 
some of our conversation, things have come up around for us around Kate Raworth and donut economics. And you talk about Tim Jackson and different framing of prosperity. And mm. there's, there, there's a lot of parallelism going on, I think, be- yeah. between your work and the concept of liminal spacism moving from one thing to another. But what happens when you're in that space and nothing is defined and nothing is as it was and nothing is as it will be. Right. Yeah. <clears throat> so I don't know. I've actually, <laughs> I think this conversation with you is coming at a good time because we've been exploring that space a lot and your work, okay. I think, and the things you were talking about very much sit in that space. They fit into that space. So I'm finding it really yeah. interesting. Cool. I was thinking just in anticipation of the chat with you guys, that there's a bit of me that is kind of, I don't know what, like highly aware that all the things I've, what I've been talking, writing is very theoretical slash speculative. I was like, but I gave a version of the Anthropocene talk in Amsterdam recently. And I was like, I really would like to have some examples here. What are the signals that are coming through that whether I'm just picking up that kind of align with these, like, especially around the, how does, how do design principles need to evolve or change or are they still valid and useful? But yeah, there's a, I guess that's part of it. There's, you're, there's more thought and conceptual exploration than practice in some ways it feels it's, uh, and design has been very practice first in, in my experience, but it's, um, a, yeah, I don't, I don't know if there's a little embarrassment around thinking, oh, I'm talking this big talk about this kind of epoch level stuff <laughs> and it's quite hard to get tangible about it. I, one of the things I think about that is that there's a, there's a role to be played for observing the system right in the first place something i picked up from being around a lot of great system thinkers um is you have to study the system first you have to observe the system so there's a role to be played for um people to highlight to us an observation of how this system is working right now and if that system is um yeah at whatever level of focus that is so if that is about design practice then that's a useful observation. I, I think there are similar observations being made of business and its role in society, institutions and their role in society. Uh, there are observations being made of, quote unquote, the market and how the economy mm-hmm. is working. And my perspective is these observations line up. That's useful. There's actually, a, it reminds me, and I can't remember her name, but there's a kind of, ecological thinker she's from the west coast of north america who had that who was one of the deep deeply concerned kind of activists mm-hmm. environmentalists and to a point of losing faith and grief and stuff and then she, she in your words observed the system and there's this you know, system loop that natural systems go through like a forest where there's a growth phase and then there's a a kind of destruct, destruction phase, like a fire. And then there's a, it's like a, a double loop. And she said something about realizing that we're on the back loop for that bit where yeah. things get burnt down in order to enable the new to grow helped. And so it's because there's a lot of must act in the world, but mm-hmm. it's interesting you say, but observing the system and understanding what's going on, um, might is probably very very helpful, and and also in some ways, 
one thing we can do, right? There's... Yeah, yeah. I um, the idea that we'd be on a back leap, I think, is really interesting. I was saying to Brian earlier this week that I've been, for my own punishment, it seems, reading a book on design and the question of history by a chap called Tony Fry. Clive Dillnett and Susan Stewart. It's a series of essays. And it's like deeply academical about design history, the topic of design history. Oh, yeah. um, but the observations inside it, which I find very hard to summarize because it was so academic in its writing. At times they're using the word historical, historicity and history all in the same sentence. And they're trying oh, to yeah. figure out what the heck they mean. Right. <laughs> but their point was that our whole understanding of how we do design, and I would argue, therefore, also business, also business, and how we run our institutions, is based on three hundred and fifty years of history. Mm. That, it, that is the the dominant mindset and theory is that of the the vanquisher of Europe and the West. Yeah. Right. And and we've lost a lot by having that mindset through pervade through everything in society. It's really interesting that um, although the book doesn't focus on topics like decolonization of design, um, that that whole premise that actually everything is based on this mindset that is trying to reinforce itself, this system that ends up looking at limitless growth and, and reinforcing and protecting it, all of our approach to design is actually born out of an education system and an infrastructure and a society that reinforces that. So very subtly and in some places explicitly, our whole design theory and approach is just simply reinforcing that. So you really need to bust it wide open. And that's one of the things I thought was really great and provocative about some of the things that you've been thinking through and I'd like to explore a bit more with you. That observation that you're taking up some levels, what can we learn from that? But also, in in both your examples, in Ben, the concept of the forest fire, the idea of destruction prior to regeneration, there's there's something <laughs> there's something apocalyptic in that. There's something there's something really frightening in that because it almost feels like you need to destroy a system before a system can regenerate. Something new can regenerate in its place before it can regrow, rebirth. And if we think about systems at planetary scale at the moment uh, and we think about the idea of the epoch even the pleistocene to holocene we we see ice age <laughs> and and we see mass destruction of civilization or even a resurfacing of the planet right and then things grow back and people grow back ice recedes and and civilizations reestablish and that sort of thing it are we at that point? Are, are we at a point where we're look where we're facing destruction of systems and ways of thinking? Yeah, it's a big topic, isn't it? I think yes, but I guess it's terrifying, isn't it? To what extent and to what level? And I guess it depends. But it, I think we're all looking at the need to kind of pull down some of those, um, some of that sort of system machinery that that's behind the kind of endless growth. You, that what i've been really i guess realizing more and more getting watching the system i like this phrase um is that even huge multinational corporations are stuck into that mode right you see shell doubling down on profits and their plans around oil and gas exploration 
I, I heard we worked for a, a large merchant bank a while ago and I got to speak to somebody about climate there and they said if we were to do anything like try to not invest in you know high carbon emitting projects we'd probably get a call from a US senator telling us that we were in breach of our license so the whole even these enormous firms so some way they're stuck in that system so how like, is it possible to unpick that or does it yeah, it's scary stuff because it's fine to talk about a forest fire in a kind of yeah. natural system, but the forest fires we see are not in that natural cycle. They're way so out of that whack. The classic capitalist uh, market argument to that is that the markets will fix for that. That if the need is, I'm just reiterating things I've heard as opposed to yeah. adhering to them, but it is that the market will fix for that when you know there will be need and there will be demand for there to be different assessments of the value of investment and the impact mm. of investment and the market will shift but i think the observation at the moment is that's in conflict with what what the planet is showing us we need and the speed with which we need that change yeah. and there is resistance in the market um because there is a kind of there is in the short term still growth to be made without having to make that shift I, I can't see that shift happening without there being fallout for existing members of the system back to your point yeah. Ron, that there has to be some kind of you can't just flick a switch and just everybody moves over to a totally new model and then that'll be fine no but the, and the market doesn't yeah yes it doesn't shift in it, it has big corrections yeah right yeah so and great. we've had interventions on those corrections. So when we were talking with Ola about the difference between the the moment of financial crisis in 2008 yeah. and what that did to business and what it didn't do to business and the economy and how we do things versus the pandemic and what that shifted. Mm. So we saw behavioral shifts and cultural shifts in the pandemic that we didn't see in 2008 financial crisis because there were other interventions to try and balance right. the system and bring it back to what it was doing before. Yeah, its governance was within control of yeah, of large financial institutions if they tried hard enough. So there was lots of pain for individuals in society that governments didn't step in as much to deal with because there was a kind of writing of the ship yeah. Um, but they stepped in and uh, stepped into the institutions so that it wasn't as bad as it might have been. And then pandemic, they stepped in to help individuals. Mm. It was interesting. But Ola's observation was that we had a very different human experience of the shift in the pandemic. All right. Well, yeah, just as a as an example that was we was discussing yesterday, I think. There's something in the news around insurance in Florida. It's like mm -hmm. many large number of homes becoming uninsurable just economically. The, the premium becomes like beyond what it's worth paying. And I had a, a colleague who worked in insurance in Australia who was talking about the same phenomenon. And I, get, I don't know, I don't have any answers, but or but it's an, it's a good example of of a kind of level of disruption that might shift things. Mm. Um, yeah, so there's some, there are some 
Go on, Brian. Yeah, I think on that point, I think I, I'd read something earlier this year about the <clears throat> the the fires in California and how vineyards were becoming uninsurable. The uh, the insurance companies wouldn't insure them anymore because they're in fire zones. <clears throat> and it just made no economic sense for them to Yeah. So that just to push it to your to this forest metaphor, if you if there's a there's land in California that has been used for making wine and that's no longer insurable. So that business maybe that vineyard is not viable potentially, or something catastrophic happens and it that they lose all their vines. Yet something there is then space there for something else to happen, potentially for a different use of that land. I mean, have you have you guys because I the, the idea of liminality I haven't explored around it, but I guess there is a it is a scary thing, right? That in yeah. so for in a traditional anthropological terms, in terms of transitioning from one mode of life to another or something, where there is risk and there is fear and there is like destruction in there as well. You're moving one one thing is dying. Yeah, I think you had referenced Nassim Nicholas Taleb uh, talking about yeah. alternative systems thriving in randomness, which made me think about conversations we had with, I think it was Andy Thornton about, was it uh, edge effect abundance? So yeah. this idea that, that major change doesn't occur at the center of things yeah. because, because the systems are so ingrained that it's almost impossible for large scale change to come from the center. It actually comes from the edge. Yeah. It comes from out the edges. And you know, there's this sense of, there's this almost sense of a higher propensity for randomness to like, be occurring at the edges. And therefore, um, innovation can occur at those edges. And, oh, nice. Yeah. And, and those leaders who don't lead or see things in conventional ways can come from those edges because they're mm. not bounded by the restrictions and the system that bind them at the center. So you get that thinking, that differential thinking that comes from the edge. And we, and, and there's a, you know, there's thinking that we should be looking to the edges more for, yeah. for solutions, for ideas, for, for things. I know no, it's great. And that just to build on that, that, you were asking about signals, Ben. There are signals that, certainly in the UK, um, but like other countries run themselves differently, but there are signals in the UK of more devolution on control, authority, power, and budgets. Um, following what's been happening with the kind of mayors of greater regions, um, certainly in England, um, the ability for a region to be more edge from the center centrality of government and therefore make different decisions about how it wants to run its region and have and look at prosperity for it are increasingly successful and yeah. i think when we were looking at the work of kate rarith and donut economics that was part, certainly part of the mechanisms that she sees for the ability to be successful it is that the more centralized things are the less you're able to do that the more you're just building a single system yeah, I was thinking, I mean, in relation to all of this and your point earlier about the 350 years of history of which Great Britain was a kind of the prime yes. instigator and kind of perpetrator of all of that. And I have been having these feelings like 
this is a strange place to be right now when the kind of the the paradigm that we've been living in originated here and we're probably the most stuck in some ways because yeah. we have the heritage and the kind of, of mm -hmm. all of that whereas yeah you even look well i've just read a really great paper called southern thought islandness mm -hmm. and real existing degrowth in the mediterranean by georges callis and colleagues who they look at a couple of very remote islands in the greek and that, that have resisted the development that most of Greece has gone through mm -hmm. and why. Mm -hmm. But they're, they're, so this Southern thought is a version of that edge thinking, but that there's a different kind of thinking in the South, South of Europe or the global South and islands as well as another place that where there is less fixedness of it. There's more, like you say, diversity or originality or particularity of that community. So yeah, should we all leave London? <laughs> well, this is a challenge, I think, is that what the kind of insurmountable barrier of perceiving or thinking through this for most people is all of the examples are edges and are small communities or are small, so how does it scale? Mm. And I think that is a huge kind of mental block that... Um, and my only thought on that is that there must be the, the examples of how we could systemize things must come from those edge cases, but there may be a huge impact of technology enabling in, in enabling us to work out how it, to yeah. Do that I guess I scale challenge that Martin, and whether scale is a kind of modern con concept in that way that we need to, because you could argue that a lot of the reasons we're in this mess is through lack of diversity of thought and practice and system yep. and that and I thought another read a book I read recently was the dawn of everything by David Graeber and David mm -hmm. Wengro which where they want well, their kind of core question is how did we become so stuck in one way of doing things one kind of politics one kind of organizational mode mm -hmm. and they look at um, other cultures pre-western cultures in North America or and in you kind of across the globe and find that there, for example, there were places that would run one political system in the summer and a different one in the winter. Depend, they would centralize and then they would disperse and they would have wow. a single ruler and then they would have small tri small bands of hunters. And mm -hmm. it's a fantastic book. Yeah, they're, it's the same kind of inquiries. Like, what's the alternative to this thing that we we currently think is so fixed? Yeah. And I yeah. guess I mentioned this, I guess I mentioned the scale because to me that when I said that, I was thinking the population that we have mm. is at scale compared yeah. to, and so when you're thinking about trying, this is the, this is the tension point, which is the challenge of what uh, are the ecosystem we live with that can sustain mm. and how to live within it sustainably. The um, and, and the answer for it has to be one in which, or it, I guess it feels like it has to be one in which um, that is f for all of the people, because you're not going to get people <laughs> voting for an answer that includes less people. <laughs> no, but I wonder one. So if we took an ex an example of a transformation that we need to see in the UK, which would which is that all of our homes and buildings move away from using fossil fuels to heat and power, yeah. which 
is I find particularly interesting from a design point of view because that's very a very human challenge because mm. we all have a gas boiler in our home. So it means that it's not just that we need to change the, the energy supply system. We actually need to go into all the houses and change the houses and change yeah. and deal with humans who don't like change. And that, that, with a modern mindset and a kind of with a, a rational hat on, I, my head says the government should change the subsidy system to make gas less viable, subsidize the clean energy system, subsidize the, those who find it hard to pay. There should be a kind of like a Biden-esque yeah. effort to do this. But like you say, the polit so the centralized political system with the issues that it has is not doing that. So then I st you start to think, what are the alternatives? How might this play out in other ways? And could it be that there's more local? Would it actually happen faster if it if we weren't expecting that big effort? Would it happen faster? This probably is happening faster in Scotland than it is in England, just because <laughs> that's my assumption around uh, these kind of things. But I don't know. I think then you get into the geography of places being quite different as well. Yeah. But I think that's why... I'm finding it interesting to follow this kind of devolution within a country. Yeah. He says, skillfully trying to avoid the <laughs> sitting in Scotland, trying to avoid that other question. If I could talk about devolution of powers rather than separation of countries. Um, yeah. It is interesting because I think uh, you, you start to speak to, in the UK at least, these government um narratives around leveling up around decentralizing away from london and we're seeing a lot of things shifting and changing things like channel 4 moving out of london has shifted the economics of the job market and the skills distribution and opened up opportunities for people if you took your home heating example and lay that as a economic market challenge for a region it may move more quickly yeah yeah and then if that region is seeming to be successful at that and therefore more economical to live in alongside other efforts, then, you know, your other regions will need to respond to that. So can I come back to this? Oh, it, it's still quite capitalistic and market driven, but the market needs, the markets need some nudges. And I think it's about decentralization, which goes right back to what Brian was saying, that everything that we're seeing is about the innovation comes from edges, but probably at all levels of scale if that makes sense you need to look for you're not decentralizing every little thing but at certain mm. levels you're looking to devolve so that there are more edges but i then i yeah. my question then brian i reckon is what ends up aligning um what are the what state what is different therefore and what is the same because we have a joint challenge of our planetary boundaries right? yeah but using your <clears throat> so using your example for instance of the uk as long as what the people of the UK need need <clears throat> is seen through Westminster, right? Then we're talking about a very heavily systematized historic view of what those needs are. Everything is being viewed from the center. If devolution is, is not true devolution, right? If it's only devolution in name, but it doesn't come with the it doesn't come with the power and the capabilities and the skills and the finance and the and the things that that 
pushing it and devolving it into a region mm. would truly come with, then is it then are those places edges yet? Are they there? Maybe they're not yet edges. Maybe they're only, maybe we're only perceiving them as edges, but the real power is still sitting at the center. Taking away, (laughs) taking away HS2 link to Manchester, Mm -hmm. right? Severs, (laughs) severs a connection, right? It's severing a a perceived connection to the north. But that, so this kind of connects. For me, what I so one of the things I've felt as a critique of design more and more recently is that it's like or ha- tends to like to sit in a kind of apolitical space. But if I was being facetious, I'd say it's like we're human centric, therefore we're what the good guys, which yeah. has its merits in a way because I think there is a most organisations are dehumanising to some extent to be pushing against that as is valid, but hard work and, um, but that actually, unless you engage and understand what the political dynamics are, you're going to be missing a kind of a key piece of understanding of how things are working. And I, so I just, I did actually, after writing the Anthropocene piece that you'll have read for the last presentation, I was recommended a book that was called the onto politics of the Anthropocene and it's by a political science professor who but uh, yeah so i i think there's a, a, an interesting thing to think about like this discussion is quite about the politics and then obviously you want to, <laughs> you want to avoid the kind of scottish devolution question but it's a different kind of devolution you're talking about really isn't yes. it it's not a yeah. nationalistic yeah. one it's more because yeah. um, i've been i've been watching I'm fascinated by how some things in Wales go faster just because of the local scale. And there's mm-hmm. this wonderful piece of legislation that they have in Wales around future journeys where certain projects like a road has been stopped because um, it contravenes this rights of future generations legislation that they've got. I can't remember the details on it. Yeah, so just something about the curious as to why it is some, somehow that those places on the edges can be more innovative. It might be partly the historical fact that Westminster is steeped in the ways that it, and the arrogance and things like that. But yeah, what else is going on there? I, um, I've been wondering about power and, um, and the allure of that, whether explicit or implicit whether the individuals realize it or not and and control that comes with that so i think the thing that we're probably a lot of us are least comfortable with is a sense of a lack of control Mm. ironically i think that um, the the more progressive ideas about how society can thrive is about giving a sense of agency to people the transition that you need to go through to get to that actually requires taking people out of comfort zones. So there's a very human at all levels. There's a very human basic psychology resistance to, to change for most, except for those people who are kind of change makers, right? Driving that. And I think that, that continues and is exacerbated in, 
highly political and economic situations of either board level or government. This and a government level, they've got a cycle of four years, at least two of which are spent campaigning around getting back into power and control. And in a corporate environment, the system drives them towards a certain rhythm and cave of certain types of results, which is connected to limitless growth. Mm. And both corporate and government are linked by that as well. So it's, I think, although we can talk about systems and processes in the economies, it's humans at the end of the Mm. day who find themselves in a context and and then behave as humans do, which is resist change, try to to keep control, whether they realise they're doing it or not. Um, so what's in my head is the edges are more free in a way in terms of less captured if you if you read George Monbiot about Westminster he he's pretty convinced they're all captured by the dirty industries that spend the most on lobbying that there's Mm -hmm. just a kind of stuckness there to Mm -hmm. whereas if you're less powerful and on the fringe maybe less wealthy you have more freedom there's there's some like Yeah, most of that influence is naturally going to go into the core because that's where they're they're going to buy the most influence. You're not going to put your investment in the edge, right? Um, Because that's not where you're going to derive your power. And yet, maybe that frees the edges up. They're not bound to that influence. And therefore, it frees the edges up to have a little bit more leeway. There's less oversight. There, yeah. there are less people looking at them to say, why are you doing that? What are you doing? Right. So there's more freedom to, to create and do things differently or think differently at the edges. Yeah. So this links directly to, a, I guess, to a question around just the, in terms of design and where you choose to work. Yeah. Because if you're, if you buy the argument, like the, that the fun stuff, I guess if your motivation is, fun and changed and, and the and that is happening more on the edges um fun in a serious way but yeah 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 so then i mean it's just it's a very a kind of basic question around what's is what's the value in working for large organizations large established organizations and yeah and that's a kind of key choice isn't it where do you put your time and it's something that I have conversations about a lot. And I think um, Brian and I have also spent quite a bit of our time talking about product, uh, to, I guess, to simplify the conversation, production versus strategy. And that's really oversimplifying. It's probably using too blunt a word. But in a large organization, let's assume a large organization that um, has a reasonably good connection to its purpose that is a purpose that is widely including stakeholders as opposed to narrowly shareholders but is still a big organization that still needs to do what it needs to do this quarter and this year so it's in that kind of tension point of transition you've got a lot of work that needs to be done now to keep the business running You've got work that needs to be done to change the business over the next two years to keep evolving in pace with the market so that it can continue to exist. And then you've got Mm. work that is, where will we be in 10 years' time? And so if I think about that kind of as production-level design, um, 
change level design and transformation level design. My theory is if you are growing in your career, there's a huge amount to learn from production because whatever transformation you make will result in production level work at the end in any case, right? Just Mm. might be different. There will always be that. So cut your teeth there. Uh, Others will, will, will move straight into just being change instigators very early in their career. That's great. That's fine. But I think there's a really valid role for people to play in getting experience from production. But I, I think the yeah, but I think we've in the past we've talked about I mean for any of us who've worked in design within the digital space as it became digital. There's kind of we've we going way back to the beginning of what we talked about when we were talking about the book, we were talking about design this kind of shift of design from external agency based <clears throat> design through to an evolution of design going into companies that hadn't experienced design before. So we're not talking about the Philips of the world or the companies who are were creating physical products necessarily, but maybe companies who, who were outside of that, <clears throat> who engaged agencies to do design for them. And then over a period of time, design started to move in-house and then design became a very heavily in-house focused thing. And then design, we, we also talked about design having more of a strategic hold going back 15, 20, 25 years ago and becoming more productionized. I've actually come to, (laughs) I've come to believe now that design was productionized before we, before digital came about, it was already productionized, right? The idea of design and productionizing Mm -hmm. it into the consumerism around design. And so all we saw, I think with digital was a brief renaissance where design because it hadn't yet become productionized in the digital space, design had a brief renaissance of becoming a bit more strategic. Mm. And over the course of the 30 years, it's become, it's gone back into being productionized as society already saw design prior to. That's really interesting. (laughs) And so my thinking based on where we started, our hypothesis around the book and the podcast has evolved to say that actually it didn't, it becoming productionized isn't a new thing. It was productionized. We simply had a brief respite from that productionization. And that, and at that time of more industrial and physical product design, the connection between production and design and what to produce and how to produce it was much closer. You know, I always hop back to the Dieter Rams atelier was right next to the engineers, right? And he, they were next to each other. And these are golden moments when designers and engineers work together, right? But it was thus. But the means of production have changed dramatically. There was a massive moment of, I think we can get even more growth out of focusing on this tech that's going to have all the answers for us. There was a kind of, there was a shift in after kind of 1999, 2000, where the way business saw how it could get growth and profit and value started to really change and change rapidly. And so it was a moment of turmoil, Brian, I reckon, that in which you saw that window open of, oh, design is one of those advantages, but actually 10 or one out as the advantage. And yeah, that's the story, isn't it? That there was that period where there was some new early movers who were doing an amazing thing. And then there were 
a lot of organizations out, out there who were like, what is the internet and what can I do with it? So suddenly you had this, what can I do with it? Do the right thing rather than do the thing right conversation, which for us went up until about 2008. And then suddenly, and then you just get this, you know, late majority of organizations coming through who need an app, but they just, there's a huge amount of stuff that needs to be produced. Yeah. yeah. So it's always that, And now I think the designers are sitting with the engineers in squads. That's mm-hmm. again. That, two, uh, is, that 2008 period is really, it's, it's a really strange marker because I remember when I was running FunCube, we did, we did, um, that was at the time that VOD was emerging to, to 2006, mm-hmm. 7, 8. In that period, we worked with, we worked with uh, Channel 4 to create 4OD. And there, there was a period of time where engineers, designers, we were all melding and merging and playing mm-hmm. off one another during that period of time. And, and there was a lot more fluidity, I think, between the disciplines at that period of time versus you stay in your box and we're in our box mm. and it kind of changed after that that whole sense of we all need an app right why <laughs> why do you need an app but right it, and i do i remember that whole that emerged around all things internet we need a, an x right why do we need an X? Well, because they have an x right so so we need one too there, there was no more sense of is this the right thing to be doing right yeah, although I would argue that I, was, I went swimming the other day and I booked it on the app and I was like, how did this work beforehand? Like, I've, And Douglas Coupland talks about our brains are different now. <laughs> how do you run a leisure center that you can't, ju- that people can't just book their own? So they do really, they do need it because that is how the, that is how we operate now, right? That's how you book something. Or, but see, that's how. So there is, I know what you're saying, Brian, but there is also, there is just like a huge lot of digital to be made. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, but I also, again, we're, we're living, we're in a liminal period still. People think of digital as being, I, the new young generations think digital has been around forever, right? Mm. But there are those of us who are remember pre-digital, right? We remember yeah, yeah. the period of time before that. And there's still very many people alive who don't want to use an app to book mm. a swimming lane at a leisure center, right? So this is that, this completely exemplifies that whole sense of core versus edge, right? There are people today living at the edge who, for them, that is not how they see the world. That's not their worldview. But but for those of us who live at the center of digital, that's become our worldview. So so we are the center, right? I did, just as a related thing that you've sparked, I read recently that only a quarter of the world are plugged into the global food system, you know, the global supply chain of food that we live in, we think is how everyone operates the supermarket shipping container system. Most people in the world still eat local. And we think eating local, I watched a documentary about this family in uh, Northern Canada who tried to eat local for, you know, like a novelty experiment, but most people do. <laughs> I was wondering if we could, because yeah, we went into that reflection, but is there what could be learned for the, so that there's a, a kind of a meme in the world at the moment that we what we saw and what we learned through the digital wave is valuable and applicable to our adjustments around sustainability that companies are going to have to go through an even bigger i'm not sure if this is true but there's a kind of a logic to it you know i've even seen graphs like we did this for digital and we can then we can do that for sustainability i, I mm-hmm. think it's a more fundamental dramatic shift when I, my first job in 
for a web agency, one of my colleagues has said, no, it's all the same. We're just doing it. It just makes it faster. We're doing the same mm. things, but faster. Whereas it, I feel like we won't be doing the same things. But any thoughts on that? I was wondering whether it's really interesting you bring that up because one of the questions I was going to ask you earlier was you you and uh, and Chris and the others at LiveWork in those early days seem to be working on things and with companies who had a different mindset or approach, right? And if I think about engine service design as well, um, they you, you seem to be getting projects when you're introducing really and making commercially real this concept of service design and articulating that for people. It seemed to be doing work that was going beyond, I guess, what Brian and I were talking about there with the very narrow focus of digital build me an app. Yeah. Seeing it more end to end. Was there something fundamentally different about the mindset or approach of those companies? Had they just tapped into something that they, that were they riding the wave of customer experience is key? Did it really work for them? Was one of my first questions. Right. And I and I was reflecting on who now, which kind of organizations now are doing the kind of more edge thinking. And I, I caught up yesterday with some GSA student graduates who are doing futures work as a commercial agency. And I was like, wow, which companies are you doing that with? No, not companies. It's all public institutions. Mm. So the, yeah, interesting so who thinks this way who's gonna be willing to engage in the edge thinking you yeah. went through a cycle of that with service design yeah so i think my answer to that first question is that they were probably not particularly unique we worked with quite a lot of design teams or innovation teams right. early on but i think the fact that their organizations didn't have a a, a kind of comparator they've got an app thing they, there was nothing for them to assume so we were able to fill the void with something a little bit more original and based mm -hmm. in insight because you know, a lot of the time you are battling that kind of playbook right that we yeah. just need to do we, we just need to buy a crm and we need to buy it mm -hmm. so i think that was the thing that the people who listened who we got attention and got to work with had no assumption so it was you weren't having to fight that, right. and you were only. So that was the reason. I really like this question about who. Kate Ray was. She's working, isn't she, with the city of Amsterdam to look at this mm -hmm. donut economics. Yeah. I, yeah, I think that's probably very. It's probably very true that it's public institutions that have, that maybe are at the forefront. We just sorry, just to give you a little story. Yeah. We just finished some work with a. Um, a manufacturer of uh, the uh, gas flues for home in the Netherlands. And because gas central heating is going to be phased out in the Netherlands, they are looking at what do we do? That's 25% of our business. And it was a, we've published of, of posts around the work because it was a very systems-led approach. Mm. And that's a comparable project to some of those early, like, open more opportunity to look wider than usual because mm -hmm. needs must in a way, because they have a void. They, we've reflected sometimes that in a lot of our work, there isn't a kind of a, really a burning platform. It's actually keeping up with the Joneses kind of stuff mm -hmm. often. But now and again, there is this more open space, whether it's 
a kind of a, a existential or just a really fantastic opportunity. It's making me wonder so, about. Go on. Sorry. Yeah, so I just wonder what one thing we're thinking is maybe as legislation around sustainability becomes more prevalent, there will be more of these kind of yeah situations where the opportunity is quite is more dynamic. So I, I would think about it back to because Brian, you picked up in our conversation with Andy about this idea of edges, and you've run with that quite a bit, and I find that very useful. I'm just going to pick up on that again here. And I think there's two things that I'm going to pull in. One is what we were talking about, devolution of regional um, powers, and that being a way of uh, operating more effectively in an edge. Yeah. And then regulation creating a new edge um, of constraint on business. It would constraint with positive intent. Yeah. The example of Kate Rarath working with a city a lot of the themes I think come out from this are place-based. And mm. I mean, it's one of the things I have been seeing with um, some of the narrative around regenerative design and regenerative thinking uh, and the evolution of design practice being place-based. And that is a term that I originally heard and had an intuition about, but also thought, God, if I tried to explain that to my gran... She probably wouldn't know what I meant by place based. But I do think there's something in this need to really situate our best thinking in the edges. That means going to places where there are people who are living with needs and really understanding that and having an ability to, at the edge there, impact and do change there, then become something we learn from. But there's an interaction that will create a bigger change which is when that place-based exploration and regulation and then a bit of commercial needing to step into that those things come together so we'll see bigger bigger change yeah i think there's a lot there so if i go back to my my kind of questioning of design principles and the kind of the, yeah what i went into on the around design a, a collaboration being a kind of key design or co-creation was that, that that activity which we would typically would be within an organization or between an organization and its customers or beneficiaries but actually that needs to get that level of collaboration needs to step up and be much bigger and the obvious kind of example would be at a geographical level like at a town level or a regional level or a or a, or maybe at a system like breaking the boundaries and looking at it at a system level like the health system within so I really, and that's quite a nice, a kind of a challenge, a good challenge again to where, like, where do you work and where designers, because if you're within the firm and within the kind of artificial boundaries of the firm, then it's quite hard to do any of these things because you're not really working at a system level, you're working at a firm level. And then I, it makes me think about this, which I have an intent to understand more about the bioregionalism, this kind of movement around, because before there were nations and modern colonial activity, most of the world was bioregionally units, right? It's a city-state mm-hmm. or a particular mm-hmm. valley, or what would it? I, I kind of wonder what would it look like if you said, "I'm the, I'm part of the design team for 
I don't know, the Thames Valley. Yes. Yeah, that's interesting. I This idea of regionalism and everything that happens within the construct of regionalism, we've when when you talk about you know like North America you know if we talk about Native American <clears throat> tribes or the, it's not like they were it's not like they were importing and exporting they everything they needed to survive was within the was within their regions the regions that they, they operated right mm. and they didn't need they didn't need anything outside of from outside of those regions to survive and and when Kate Raworth talks about developing a different relationship what is prosperity what, what does it mean to prosper and thrive right this sense of redefining it they if we look at things like native american indian tribes back before we destroyed them <laughs> colonized they had everything they needed to thrive within the areas in which they lived right we've moved away from that and i and now you're right these things organic is an example of this kind of thing that we do <laughs> to try and convince ourselves that we're we're experimenting and living in a better way by being organic, right? Where it's there's nothing new to, to to that idea. Just it's just become it becomes a flavor of the moment. There there's this hotel group I like down in the they were predominantly in the southwest here in the UK called the Pig, and one of their one of their selling points is that. They source the the majority of their meats and cheeses and and produce from within a twenty five mile radius of the hotel of each hotel, right? And so they they try as much as possible to live regionally in terms of their consumption and transport and things like that. There there are examples of these things that are out there. They're not. It's not in central London that we're going to find that. It's in the southwest where they're trying to do that. But in terms of making that great change, do you make it, or you're making the point, do you make it from within the firm, within the organization, within the agency, or actually is it the interstitial spaces that you need to focus on the space yeah. that connect community to, to industry? Um, <clears throat> and do you look in those spaces, those interstitial spaces for opportunity, for ways to connect people, to connect things? together in a way that maybe the the role of agent is not that one-to-one relationship with the client with the organization anymore maybe it's to look into those interstitial spaces and find new ways to connect people yeah and organizations and industry together in different ways and that becomes a new that becomes a new offer that becomes a new way of working right yeah i mean i've felt like that's probably where you would need to be in order to work on the challenges that I would ideally want to be working on. And it's, and that in, yeah. how do you facilitate that? And who is the kind of, um, what's the word? Like convener. The, the convener, exactly. And how do you get paid? I guess is the, becomes yes. a question, which then links to a thought I was having whilst you were talking in a lot of ways, what we're talking about is unpicking our Western selves from the things that we've got attached to yes. international food supply chains and unpicking ourselves from the things we've got attached to like corporate clients who pay good money and things like that so there's a there's quite an ex, i think an example of people who are doing this is civic square who i think kate rayworth works with who work in the midlands and convene like at a very local level people to look at things like you know heating transformation yeah, yeah. i think we also need to let go of the 
idea that our known methods and approaches are right <laughs> because that is inextricably linked to the privileged control power and influence that <clears throat> western european thinking has developed so back to that point about place-centered um understanding from a local perspective mm. and the biggest challenge i think for us in 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 uk europe or or the west is that we are surrounded by ourselves a lot the biggest i think the biggest challenge is actually trying to really decenter yourself from that there's something i think also in everything you've, you've both just said there about a challenge to lay back down to those leaders of large-scale organizations because that's where we see the biggest challenge in that kind of thinking right is you're smaller you're probably closer to place you're probably more at edge in any case right which is how do you help a, an executive level leadership team or even a middle management level leadership team um break from that thinking understanding that some of their best advantage may come from operating that edge and, well, yeah. and i think that's why it's a really powerful idea brian that might be a role of agency but also, I just I'm listening to us and thinking, <laughs> wondering if, as a 50 year old white guy, who's yeah. saying, and I can imagine some people in the world might be saying, "No shit, Sherlock, nice that you've finally come around to realizing." Oh what, my god, what, yes, <laughs> absolutely. <laughs> good, good that you're good that you're waking up. Yeah, but also, I guess the other challenge is don't go piling in on my local. You know, don't come. Colonial, okay. colonially telling me how to do my bi-regional thing or whatever. So I to to think, I like what you said, where are we and who do we work with and what's mm -hmm. our kind of access point, which is, you know, something we're talking about. And yeah, how do you look at the system and think, where, I, where am I in that system or what levers do I have? Rather than yeah. thinking the grass is greener or I could be more impactful somewhere else. It's like, how do I change tomorrow? Mm -hmm. What the conversations you're having and yeah. the kind of the way you're thinking about things yeah. and that. Yeah. The, um, As an agency, what are asking those questions about what do we need to thrive? Right. Yeah. And maybe it's not about more people, uh, more locations, right? Maybe it's about doing things differently, <clears throat> doing different things. Maybe it's about being smaller, not bigger. Yeah. And, the, the, it's, and it's and those are hard things to I've run agencies as well and those are hard things to to consider they have connotations in society that say yeah. if you reduce the size of your agency it's because you're being it's because you're less successful you're unable to mm. lead right and I think Tim Jackson Kate Ray were that they're all saying no it's not this it's not about that it's about changing it's about changing your definition right yeah. of prosperity it's about changing your definition of success <clears throat> and about being willing to go a different path walk a different way on a really basic level but it's fundamental we've we last year had someone look at our carbon footprint for live work which is not huge for a company per capita but it's you know it's there and the biggest contributing factor in it is aviation which mm -hmm. i think is half of our pretty much half of the whole thing because one flight to one intercontinental flight is shows up on the bar graph so that if we're serious about net zero then at some point we should just stop doing that unless the 
airlines are going to suddenly discover miracle technology in the short term. And that kind of feels scary, but then actually it's also an opportunity because it means, okay, that changes how you present yourself as a business and what you, who you take on or how you work. And it's quite possible, but changes the story in quite an exciting way. I mean, in that kind of thing probably forces you into addressing some of the things we've just said about if you want to be locally informed, then yeah, exactly sending Martin to yeah, yeah. on a flight to go and find out what it's exactly. like over there exactly. and be open to that. Well, like, no, just yeah. get someone local. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, that whole sense of we're, it's a little bit late in the conversation to, to start talking about the impacts and effects of pandemic on remote working and hybrid and all of that. But, the, but that whole sense of that whole sense of employing people in the places that they reside means that your organization becomes by its very nature quite local to many places, right? <clears throat> you don't travel to those places and then and then try and unpick them and understand them. You already reside in them. Your employees, the people that you work with are residents of those communities. They're parts of it quite naturally. So Yeah, we quite su- quite successfully delivered some work in Thailand during the pandemic without going there with local researchers and obviously who have local cultural and language insight already. And it was, mm-hmm. it, it all went very well. The only reason we ended up going there was more that set of assumptions and needs that people feel they have to talk to the, talk to you and meet you. And they're re- some of those things are real to them. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, I guess I would imagine some of those have, great value in relationship building for future as you have been doing your explorations and i appreciate that at the beginning of this conversation you raised a concern about the difference between thinking and doing that right what are the um what are the things that you either see happening that are the doings that give you hope given the challenge you've seen on what other things that you at this moment in your current thinking hope that we can do more of in order to address the challenges that you've seen in your thinking through i'm gonna i'm actually gonna to refer to some of the things i i found when making this recent presentation if you if that's okay it's like little potted examples so the first one was this. Have you seen these bus shelters that have green roofs and solar panels on them? Yeah, yeah. So yeah. suddenly, so just in a really kind of literal example, a designed object that traditionally was designed purely around the humans to keep mm-hmm. them dry and is now also being designed around the kind of what the wider system to be mm-hmm. self-sufficient energy-wise and to provide some habitat and you know food for bees and things like just interesting that it's a nice example because it's very easy there's a lot of talk about more than human centric or life centric or but actually say okay you're making this thing and you're going to consider multiple non-human actors as having a relationship to it in some way i think that was one i pulled out Another thing I saw, I've been following these kind of 
large when there are fairly large scale shifts in behavior so the latest one i was following was the with the war in ukraine and cutting off russian gas supply i don't know if you knew but germany managed to reduce its gas consumption by 22 percent for a quarter yes wow yeah and the UK has actually reduced its meat consumption by something like 10%, 15% over the last 10 years. So there are these these things where there is a... And the meat thing, I think, is really interesting around that, the plant-based concept and this... So it, somehow the niche edginess of vegetarianism is shifted and becomes something that everybody has access to in the... And then the other one, so this is a more close to this idea. Again, I think in a way, the fundamental thing for me around the design is, you know, the first principle, the the kind of human centric, because that's the design world that I've always lived in and, Mm -hmm. um, and the challenge to that. So I think at a a fundamental level, it's like, okay, so you could look at, I mentioned this earlier, human centric as being problematic because you're centering humans and people would say and generally that's some humans and not other humans but you're you're excluding non-human life in your prioritization and also so kind of centering human concerns which might be in conflict with the kind of needs of other life but on the other hand it's still a it still feels like a good thing in that humanism and being and empathy and all these things that we value still feel meaningful the philosopher timothy morton talks about the first step to ecological consciousness is anti-racism if you can't Mm -hmm. even accommodate other humans in your worldview then we're not going to get very far so just an example of that i was talking to my my brother's partner and she's a she works in forestry and she's working on a project that's around biosecurity and oak trees. And um, so it's a multidisciplinary, all scientists all looking at this um, disease that oaks are suffering from. They're going, they're looking at it. I know not very good with the science, but from a, some of them are looking at it from a kind of a tree health point of view. Some are looking at uh-huh. it from a forest system point of view, but they're all very scientifically, but she, they convened in Epping Forest to run some study and they, started their day by just going and sitting with the trees and try and empathize with them. So I just, I love this idea that they're breaking out of that modernist paradigm science based thing and trying to bring in the emotional and the connection there. So that, so that kind of, I guess that's the question is, so you can say life centered. What does that mean in practice? What do you do? Because we know human-centered means you go and talk to people or you observe them or you walk in their shoes. You know, there are methods in there, but what are the methods that you would bring into design to try and actually empathize and connect and bring in insight from the more than human world? Do you think that in, in all of this... Now, I'll ask this, but I don't, I, I don't think... I'm not saying this because I think it's what I hear you saying. <laughs> I can imagine other conversations I've had with people where similar thoughts have led to what I'm about to ask. Do you think this is all down to design? 
And when I say design, people who identify as designers. Or is there something, some other shift that we need in other people that work on these? Because none of these things are any one discipline, right? No. And how much of this is down to design needs to help the world change? But, I, yeah. I, 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 yeah. Design as savior, right? So, yeah, I think design can see itself as an outsider. So, but this means understanding that we're just one of many kind of methods and practices, practice communities that are all, like you said right at the beginning, we all inherit the same worldview. Right? We're all educated mm. in that kind of base. Not We're not really particularly special in here. It's, that's what's encouraging. It's the same for the forestry science folk. They need to go through the same decoding journey. I, so I don't think it's design at all, to be mm. honest. With like no more than anything else, yeah. Does that change the role that designers need to think about playing going forward? Because it, it I don't know. I, I get the sense sometimes, depending on who you talk to, designers feel the need to be seen as owning that the convening of that thinking space. And when they aren't, they feel marginalized, right? Yeah. <laughs> so, I, yeah. Which, I think designers need to own the things that they are, they're good at, right? And that, that, and that's their role to bring those things to the table. And I, so for example, what, one, my example of that within this context, because the issues are terrifying and paralyzing in some extent and the world gets, seems to get stuck so one thing so we need creativity we need not be stuck and thought oh, how about this or how about that and to and make experiments we need to keep a sense of experimentation and play otherwise nothing happens we just keep counting carbon and not doing anything or so that would be my that's one thing i've got that particular point i'm really interested in so how do you how do you keep that kind of the fun bit. Chaps, I do have another call. No worries. We've gone over on time. I was <laughs> just looking down on my phone and realizing that we were over time, which is the apologies for taking up that time. That's all right. But thank you very much for giving it to us. Um, well, it's been a lot of fun. It's much, much more fun than uh, question 23. Again, uh, question 23, yes. <laughs> or the quickfire round. <laughs> yeah. Which we didn't tell you about that one, did we? No. <laughs> This I feel like all of this is um, for us as a as a research activity. It's really interesting. There's lots for us to dive into from this. It gives us things to jump off on to other conversations, and often as a kind of thing to listen into for other people, these conversations are incomplete. Yep. I hope that people find that useful actually as their own jumping off points. I think. I'm, and I recognize that you are on your own journey of exploring this as well, which you're doing out loud and in public over time as you publish articles and things like that. And it's been fascinating to see how some of that seeps into the work that LibWork does as well and how that informs it. And thank you very much for your time. It's been a lot. And, it's been a pleasure. Yeah. And, and I hope we get a chance to come back round on it again at some point. That'd be great. Yeah, I'm going to follow with interest. Yeah, we'll have to, we'll have to convene a session over, <coughs> a live session over cocktails and maybe not record it. <laughs> <laughs>
Oh, oh. <laughs> <laughs> no, not broadcast it. Thank you very much. Broadcast it. Oh, Thanks a lot. Yeah, yeah, see you soon. Thank you. Yeah. Thanks for listening to Liminal Leaders. We'd love to continue the conversation with you, our listeners. Hear feedback about this episode, thoughts about who we should talk to next, pose questions you'd like us to consider in future conversations, and as always, suggestions for new and interesting cocktails to get us through the long nights ahead. And if you want to learn more about this podcast, its hosts or guests, go to liminalleaders.com. Thank you for listening.